Hi, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad that you are here. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, know that you are most welcome. We're glad to have you. Uh, our hope certainly every Sunday is that you would feel welcome, but also that we would point you to the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. And to do that, the best thing we think we can do is to take the Bible and open it up and to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. That's our normal habit here at Fremont E. Free. So this summer, we were in the book of James. We just finished that two weeks ago. We spent one week in the book of Hebrews, chapters 10, just thinking about the idea of Jesus' treasure to conclude our church retreat. But this morning, we are starting a new series on the book of Ezra. Now, if you're wondering, where in the world is the book of Ezra? It's in the Old Testament. So if you start at the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And then you have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then Ezra. So by my count, I think that's about the 15th book in the Old Testament. If you get to Nehemiah or Esther or Job or Psalms, you've gone too far. But Ezra is where we are this morning. It is the Word of God, and so I'm excited to, over the course of the next couple of months, to dive into this particular book. We have great confidence that every time we open up the Bible, God will speak. And that concludes this morning as we open the book of Ezra. So let me pray, and we'll turn our attention to it. Uh, Father, we want to pause here and just ask for your help this morning. We know that every single Sunday when we come together, there's always distractions. Distractions in our own life, sometimes distractions in this room, sometimes just the distractions of how difficult things are. And so we just pray that in the midst of that, you would speak to us loudly and clearly through your word this morning. God, would you minister to us? Would you remind us of your faithfulness? Would you remind us that we can trust you? Would you remind us that you are a great God? And although we are sinners and jars of clay, that you are powerful and mighty and you love us. So please, Lord, help us to see that this morning as we turn our attention to the book of Ezra. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. So as Christians, we really do believe that this book is the Word of God. From Genesis 1, the first chapter in the Bible, to Revelation 22, every book is ultimately authored by Him. Now, of course, we know that God uses human authors and the personality of those authors and the differences between different authors is obvious as you read the Bible. But at the end of the day, every human author, to use the words of 2 Peter, wrote as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. To quote 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And given that reality that every word is breathed out by God, every word in this book then is incredibly valuable and at some level equally valuable. For example, the book of Acts is not more important than the book of Leviticus, the book of Philippians, not more significant than the book of Proverbs, the book of Hebrews did not necessarily carry more weight than the book of Malachi. Every last page and every last word in the Bible is his word, and as such, every last word is precious. But having said that, we should probably be honest in saying there are certain books that we tend to gravitate towards more than others. For example, because they give his crucial testimony about the life and ministry of Jesus, we tend to pay careful attention to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because of its focus on theology and complex issues, those who are wanting to dive deep often turn to the book of Romans. Because of its honesty and raw emotions in times of trouble, many of us first turn to the Psalms as a place of refuge. And because it's just so weird and futuristic and symbolic, many of us love to study the content of the book of Revelation. And to be clear, I'm not necessarily saying that it's wrong that we're drawn to certain books like that. I think it's normal to do so, and I think there's actually probably some wisdom in studying certain books with greater fervor than others, given the truths that are presented in those books and given where they're located in the unfolding drama of Scripture. So hear me, I'm not necessarily saying that we need to be just as familiar with the book of Nahum as we are with the Gospel of Luke. 
All I'm pointing out, though, is this, that the Bible is God's word, and thus all of the Bible is worthy of our attention. I think that's worth keeping in mind because while it's true that there are certain books we tend to gravitate towards, it's also true then on the other end of the spectrum that there are ten other books that we tend to neglect. And while that's understandable to a degree, I also think there's a potential, a potential danger if we allow neglected books to remain neglected. Every book that's in the Bible is in the Bible for a reason. So while some books may be harder to understand than others, or we may gravitate more naturally towards some than others, all of them are incredibly valuable and contribute something unique to our understanding of who God is and how he's at work. So I guess what I'm pleading for this morning is to avoid neglecting certain books of the Bible. And I say that, of course, because the book that we're about to begin studying is one of the books that tends to get neglected. Put it this way, when asked the question, what's your favorite book in the Bible, which I've heard asked to many kids and students and even adults over the years, I've yet to hear anyone respond by saying, Ezra. Furthermore, I've been through a lot of senior recognition Sundays over the years in which graduating seniors are recognized and they share their future plans and their favorite Bible verse, and I've yet to hear one graduating senior list a verse from Ezra as their favorite verse. Moreover, I feel confident in saying this, that there's probably not one person in this room who has a verse from Ezra that's memorized in their catalog of scripture memory. In fact, I feel so confident in that there was a part of me this morning that wanted to offer $100 on the spot to anyone who could just stand up and quote a verse from Ezra. But I wasn't sure if that's ethical to do as a pastor during a sermon. On top of that, I also knew there'd be some junior high boy who would scam the system. They would have a photographic memory and they'd stand up right away and here I'd be out $100. But $100 or not, I think you get the point. The book of Ezra is largely unknown and largely neglected. But I don't want it to stay neglected. Because as the book of Ezra tracks the remnant of God's people returning from exile, rebuilding the temple, and reestablishing the community. And that is what the book of Ezra is about. As the book does that, I think it has a lot to offer us. It reminds us of the importance of worship. It helps us to see the crucial role of God's word and prayer. It helps us to understand how spiritual renewal actually happens. But more than anything, the book of Ezra helps us better understand our great God. It's been said before that the reason we call it history is because it's his story. And I think that's kind of cheesy and probably has no basis in reality. And yet at the same time, there is some truth to it, isn't there? God is the author of history and the one who's carrying out all things according to the counsel of his will. And so when we study a book of history like the book of Ezra, we learn a lot about who God is and how he interacts with his creation, and specifically how he interacts with his people. And we'll see that from the very beginning of Ezra. Yes, the book of Ezra is a book about God's people returning from exile, and it is a book about the rebuilding of the temple and the reestablishment of a community. But ultimately, it's a book about God. It's a book about what he's doing in history. And so in studying this neglected book, here's my hope over the next couple of months. I hope that we grow in seeing the importance of worship, hope that we see the incredible value of God's word and prayer. I hope that we have an increased desire in our own lives and in our community for spiritual renewal. But more than anything, I hope that we grow in our love for God. Because ultimately, the book of Ezra, like every book in the Bible, is a book about him. So that said, let's stand, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We're going to dive in here. Ezra 1, chapter 1 this morning, verses 1 through 11. Words will be on the screen, or you can just follow along. As I read, or you can read along in your own Bibles, but Ezra chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. Again, this is the word of God. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he's charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever's among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who's in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, beside all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithredeth, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. The word of God, you may be seated. So here's the thing about the book of Ezra. I think one of the reasons why it's a neglected book is because the genre of the book, historical narrative, means that you have to have some sort of understanding of the history to understand what's happening in the book. It can be a bit intimidating to read a book when you feel like, I don't really understand what's going on here. So before we actually get to the content of our passage today, I think we need to back up and do a little bit of history background work here. We need to understand where does this book fall in the context of all of Scripture? In other words, where are we in the scriptural storyline here? And where does this book fall in terms of immediate historical context? What's happening in the world that precipitates the events of Ezra? And to try to help you understand both of those things, where we are in Scripture and where we are in history, I'm going to try to channel my inner Seth Raymert this morning. All right, Seth, as you know, our youth director is a master of slides and charts that he uses when he preaches. So I'm going to do my best to channel my inner Seth this morning. I have several charts to show you. So first, it's probably helpful to understand where we are in the overall storyline of Scripture, which is the first slide here. So in this particular chart, you see that kind of the storyline of Scripture is being divided up into nine categories. You have creation, the fall, patriarchs, exodus in the promised land, kings and temple, Kingdom divided, Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, Pentecost and gospel proclamation, and then the new creation. Now in terms of the book of Ezra, where we would fall here is in this section that's labeled as kingdom divided. You'll notice that Babylon is listed there at the bottom of that section, kingdom divided. That's important. That plays a huge role in this story. So a little bit of further history here that might be helpful. Around 930 BC, the kingdom of Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. That event is represented on this chart by what looks like the fork in the road. Right? The, the kingdom of Israel goes to the north, the kingdom of Judah to the south. Now in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity and exiled by the Assyrians. In 586 BC, and this, this plays a huge role in this book, in 586 BC, the same thing happened to the southern kingdom. In that year, the Babylonians captured and destroyed Jerusalem. Now to be clear, the Babylonian destruction was God's response to years and years of unfaithfulness by the Israelites. Despite warning after warning, the people refused to turn from their sin, and so in the end, it led to the awful events of 586 B.C. And make no mistake about it, the events of 586 B.C. were awful. As one historian put it, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem was unquestionably the most traumatic event in the history of all the Old Testament. Houses, palaces, walls, all destroyed. The temple crucially, which had been built 400 years previously by Solomon and was the center of life of the people, was utterly decimated. Many of the people, including most of the significant leaders, were taken to Babylon Babylon as captives. 
They would remain there until Babylon was destroyed by the Persian king Cyrus in the year 539 B.C. And that brings us to the immediate historical context of the book of Ezra. When Cyrus and the Persians defeated Babylon, there's a shift in policy. Cyrus and the Persians in general were far more benevolent in their rule than the Babylonians, which meant that the Persians' approach to the Jewish exiles was far different than that of the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, Cyrus made a decree that the Jewish people could return to their homeland and they could rebuild their temple. So that's how the book of Ezra begins, with the decree of Cyrus. And in response to that decree, many of the Jewish people would in fact go back to Jerusalem and begin the slow and and tedious and difficult process of rebuilding the temple. That process of rebuilding the temple would be completed in 516 BC and is described in the first six chapters of Ezra. The first six chapters are about the rebuilding of the temple. In 458 BC, in other words, 58 years after the temple was rebuilt, Ezra himself, Ezra doesn't really come on the scene in this book until chapter 7. Ezra himself would return in 458 along with more exiles from Babylon, or at this point Persia, and that becomes the main focus of chapters 7 through 10. So in chapters 1 through 6, you have this focus on the rebuilding of the temple. In chapters 7 through 10, Ezra comes back and they try to begin rebuilding the community. So all told, and this is important to keep in mind, the period of time that's covered in the book of Ezra is about 80 years. All right, and to help you see that, I have another chart to show you. Now, this one's not quite as fancy in terms of pictures, but I think it captures well kind of the idea of what's happening in the book of Ezra. So as you can see here in 539, Cyrus, king of Persia, captures Babylon. In 538 or 537, he makes a decree that the Jewish people can go back, and then the rebuilding of the temple begins. It begins in earnest in 536. There's a few breaks because there's opposition, which we're going to see in the book of Ezra, and it's finished in 516. Again, that's the first six chapters. And then around 458, Ezra returns from exile, and that's the focus of chapters 7 through 10. So you can kind of see that's the outline. You have from 539 to about 458. That's covering the period of time that we're about to look in the book of Ezra. Now, having said that, it's probably helpful for you to understand there's some other stuff going on at the same time. So that brings us to our third chart here, which actually is a little bit more difficult to see. That's okay. Um, I'm getting older. My eyes don't work as well. I was hoping it would work better on the big screen. If you can't see real well, join the club. I can't see real well either. So I'm just going to kind of tell you what's on here. I still put it up there because I want you to see the overlapping nature of what's going on. You see the blue, the green, the purple. That's demonstrating there's some overlapping things happening here because there are some things happening at the same time as this book is taking place. For example, the ministries of Zechariah and Haggai, which you may have heard of before, they're Old Testament books as well, happening during the same time as the events of Ezra. Furthermore, the events that are described in the book of Esther, which you've also probably heard of, take place in the time period between the rebuilding of the second temple, 516, and Ezra's return to Jerusalem around 458. In other words, between chapters 6 and 7 in terms of timeline, that's when the book of Esther takes place. Also worth noting, and again, it's hard to see on this chart, but the events of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem take place 13 years after Ezra returns to Jerusalem. Now, in the original Hebrew Bible, in the original Hebrew Bible, Nehemiah, or excuse me, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. So now, no doubt, they're meant to be seen as companion books. So Nehemiah is a continuation of the events of the book of Ezra. So this chart kind of gives you a snapshot of what's going on in the Old Testament related to the book of Ezra, but perhaps it's, it's easier to show it in a simpler form. So let me put up one last slide here. I think this will kind of capture everything we've talked about, right? So just in terms of history of the Old Testament, we have Abraham in 2000 BC, then the Exodus around 1446, David in 1000. Again, we have the kingdom divided, I think in, I said in 930 approximately, the fall of the northern kingdom in 722, the fall of the southern kingdom 586, Persia conquers Babylon in 539, 
The first Jews returned in 537. The temples restored in 516. Esther becomes queen in 479. The second Jewish people, or second group returns in 458. Ezra and then Nehemiah rebuilds the wall 445. All right, so that's what I got for you for charts. I hope, I hope that was satisfying to Seth if he's here today. I hope that he was encouraged by my use of charts. And hopefully for you, hopefully for you, this is helpful to try to understand what's going on in terms of history as it relates to the book of Ezra. So just let me put it in real quick summary fashion here. Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple decimated, and the people taken to exile around 586 B.C., Around 538, the king of Persia makes this decree that the people could return and begin rebuilding the temple. And that's where we pick up the story in Ezra 1, verse 1. Now, having said all that, I think it's vital that you understand some of the background information that we just talked about if you're going to understand what's happening in the book of Ezra. But I also don't want us to get so caught up in the historical detail that we forget the purpose of the text. The book of, Israel is not, or book of Ezra is not meant to be a textbook regarding the history of the people of Israel. Now, the book of Ezra, don't get me wrong, it is an historical text, but it's not primarily an historical text. It's primarily a theological text. It's primarily helping us understand who God is and how he's at work. And that reality is going to be very clear from the beginning of this book. In Ezra chapter 1, the primary character is God. He's the one at work accomplishing his purposes. And because he's the primary character in chapter one, he will be the focus of our time together this morning. My goal this morning is not that you would leave with a better understanding of the historical background of the book of Ezra. Although I think that's important, I hope you do leave with a better understanding of the background of the book of Ezra. My goal this morning is that you would leave with a better understanding of who God is. And a better appreciation for how he works and a greater desire to worship him. Because ultimately, the book of Ezra, like every book in the Bible, is about God. And so to that end, what I want to do in the rest of our time together this morning is simply remind you of three things we learn or we see or are reminded of about God in Ezra chapter 1. Three things we're reminded of about God. So reminder number one, God sovereignly directs the hearts of people according to his purposes. God sovereignly directs the hearts of people according to his purposes. Look again at verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings, and for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Cyrus and the Persians were far more benevolent in their rule than the Babylonians. Historical documents would suggest Cyrus was very consistent in honoring the different religions and customs of his subjected people, wherever they were from. So perhaps what Cyrus does here in terms of allowing the Jewish people to go back and rebuild their temple is not all that unusual given Cyrus's general philosophy of governing. And I think we have to understand that Cyrus here is being driven by political realities. For Cyrus, no doubt, treating exiles with benevolence was part of his political calculation. So in other words, what we're saying is Cyrus is doing exactly what he wants to do here. But having said that, let's be absolutely clear. Ultimately, God is the one directing the show here. As verse 1 informs us, the Lord is the one who stirred up the heart of Cyrus so that he would proclaim the Jewish people could go back and rebuild the temple. 
And in that, we have to acknowledge there is a bit of a mystery here, isn't there? As to how human choice or human responsibility and divine sovereignty go hand in hand. Did Cyrus willingly, by his own volition, make a decree that the people could go back? Yes, he did. At the same time, was God ultimately the one directing his heart to do so? Yes, he was. So how do those two things go together? How is it that Cyrus can be doing exactly what he wants to do, while at the same time God is accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish? And the answer is, it's a bit of a mystery. To use an illustration that we've used before, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are like two sides of the same roof. If you're standing on one side of the roof, you just can't see how the other side is possible. Right? If you're thinking about human responsibility, the choices that we make every day, and you're thinking, I make legitimate choices, you can't see the other side of the roof and think, how is God sovereign over every last thing? But if you're on this side of the roof, thinking about the sovereignty of God, and thinking God's in control of everything, you can't think, how do we have legitimate choices to make? It doesn't make sense. If you're on one side of the roof, depending on which side you're, you're coming from, what perspective you're looking at, you're, you're not sure, how do these fit together? And yet, when we're up above... And we're looking down, specifically when we're thinking from God's perspective, the two can coexist at the same time. From God's perspective, human responsibility and divine sovereignty are not at odds whatsoever. They're just two sides of the same roof. Now, how that works together in our finite human minds, we have to admit it is a bit of a mystery. But the scripture clearly teaches both. Having said that, though, the emphasis in this passage and emphasis throughout scripture is clearly on the sovereignty of God. Proverbs 21.1 says it this way, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So thinking in scriptural terms, whether it be Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus here or Herod or Pontius Pilate, there's not one ruler in all of scripture working outside of God's sovereign control. Listen, there is only one king in the Bible. And as Ezra chapter 1 is not so subtly reminding us, it's not actually Cyrus. It's the king. The Lord of lords, the King of kings, the mighty God. God is the one directing the hearts of kings like a watercourse. For that matter, he's the one directing the hearts of all people, which is something we see in verse 5. Verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone, catch this language, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. So whether it be Cyrus decreeing that the Jewish people could go back and rebuild the temple or the Jewish people deciding to go back and rebuild the temple, God is the one who's clearly calling the shots here in Ezra 1. He's stirring hearts. Now I'll say this, this idea that God is sovereign over all things should give us great confidence as we think about the current state of the world. I don't know if you've heard this yet, but there's an election that's coming next year. And I have no doubt that 2024 will be just as contentious and it'll be just as ugly, and it'll be just as divisive as 2020. In fact, probably more so. But hear this, and hear it clearly. No matter what president we elect next year, or what senator or congressperson, city council member, school board member, God will still be on the throne. God will still be on the throne. There is not one politician or ruler operating outside of his sovereign control. Now, to be sure, there will be plenty of politicians who will do and say wicked and heinous things. And to be absolutely clear, God is not responsible for their wicked or heinous actions. As the Bible is clear, he's not to be blamed for evil. He is holy and pure and blameless. But while that is true, he is still sovereign over everything that happens. And in his sovereignty, he's able to use even the actions of wicked kings to bring about his good purposes. God is the author of history. 
He's directing all things to his end. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. That's one thing we need to be reminded of in this passage. God is sovereignly directing the hearts of people according to his purposes. Reminder number two. Reminder number two, God provides for his people. All right, so let's go back to verse four, and I want you to just notice the ways that God is providing as they're rebuilding the temple. Verse four, and let each survivor, whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside free will offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 4 and 10 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So if you're keeping track at home here, Cyrus not only decrees that the Jewish people could go back and rebuild their temple, but he also retrieves some of the spoils of war that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and he gives them back to the people. In other words, these were in his possession. He says, no, you can have them back to rebuild their temple. So he's helping to supply the Jewish people as they're rebuilding the temple, and he's actually encouraging others to do the same too. I don't know if you noticed that in his decree, that he encouraged others to provide for them. And in that, there's certainly an echo here of the Exodus story. Maybe you remember the story from Exodus. When the people of Israel left Egypt and left slavery, on the way out the door, they were provided with material goods by the people of Egypt. We see the same thing happening here. I don't think that's a coincidence. We're meant to see that echo. As the Jewish people are heading back to Jerusalem, there are people that are providing them, probably Jewish people, but also non-Jewish people, supplying them with their needs. Even Cyrus himself is getting in on the act. He's saying, oh yeah, here are the spoils of war that I have. You can have them back. Listen, if that doesn't strike you as odd, it should. By all accounts, Cyrus was not a believer in the one true God. Now, obviously, given the way he talks in verses 2 to 4, he had a healthy respect for the God of the Israelites, but historical documents would indicate he was actually a worshiper of Marduk, the Babylonian God. And yet, get this, he helps to provide for the Jewish people as they seek to rebuild their temple. That's kind of strange, right? A guy who doesn't believe in the same God saying, oh yeah, you can have my goods, you can have all this wealth, you can have it back to rebuild your temple. That is strange. And yet it's a reminder to us, God does indeed provide for his people. When Tanya and I first got married, I worked on staff for a campus ministry for a couple of years while Tanya finished her last two years of college. Now I forget what we actually made in terms of salary, but I'm pretty sure it was in the low to mid-20s. We were not making a lot of money. We had plenty of nights of spaghetti and the cheapest marinara sauce possible. No meat, just noodles and sauce. Right? We were living with little margin for error. And yet looking back, it was amazing how God would always provide at just the right time. A gift would come into our campus ministry account, or our friends would take us out to eat at the dining center on campus, or someone would send us a random check. God would provide for us just when we needed it. Now, he didn't always give us what we would have wanted, but he always gave us what we needed. And I suspect that many of you in this room could share a similar story of how God's provided for you in unexpected and sometimes just ways that you wouldn't have seen coming. That's what we see here in the book of Ezra, isn't it? 
that God is providing, and he's doing so in an unexpected and surprising way. He's providing through Cyrus, through non-Jewish people, through people who are just saying, here, you can have our goods to go rebuild your temple. God provides for his people. Now, of course, the greatest evidence of his provision is that he sent his son to die for our sins. Our greatest need is not material. Our greatest need is peace with God, forgiveness of our sins. And yet God, in his kindness, sent his son so that this need could be taken care of. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he rose three days later, that if anyone would turn to him, they could be saved. God provides In sending his son, God demonstrated he will provide for his people. So listen, if God provided by sending his son, and if God is providing through the hand of a pagan king like Cyrus, you can be confident he will provide for you too. That's the second reminder in this passage. God provides for his people. Reminder number three, God keeps his promises. Verse one, verse one says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Again, there's no doubt here that Cyrus is accomplishing his own purposes in sending the Jewish people back to rebuild the temple. But in making the decree that he does, Cyrus was also fulfilling the word of the Lord. Specifically here, and this is what the author of Ezra is alluding to, he was fulfilling a prophecy that was made by the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 25 and 29 and 32, Jeremiah prophesied that the people of Judah would be taken into captivity and for 70 years they would be in exile. But then God would bring them back to the land. And through the decree of Cyrus, that's exactly what happened. Although the destruction of Jerusalem took place in 586, the first captives were taken into captivity around 605. And so if they started coming back around 538 or 537, that's almost exactly 70 years. Furthermore, from the time the temple was destroyed in 586 to the time it was finished rebuilding in 516, that's exactly 70 years, which is what Jeremiah said would happen. And all of that, we're reminded, God keeps his promises. Even Cyrus himself is a reminder of this reality. From the passage Jim read earlier in Isaiah 44, 28, again, we read this, Cyrus, he's my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, you should hear that word in Isaiah 44 and think that's exactly what's happening in Ezra 1 because that is exactly what's happening. But here's what's crazy. The prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 44 occurred about 150 years before Cyrus did what he did. In other words, long before Cyrus even breathed, before he was even alive, God had a plan for him. And that plan unfolded exactly as God said it would. So here's the thing, and you can take this to the bank. God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. He kept his promise by bringing back the people from exile. He kept his promise with the temple being rebuilt. He kept his promise in sending one to rescue us from our sin. And he will keep his promise to send his son again to make things right. Jesus will come again, and all those who've trusted in him will reign with him forever. He keeps his promises. Now listen, we live in a world full of people who don't keep their word. How many times have you heard a politician make a promise they don't keep? How many times has someone told you, oh, I'll call you back or I'll send you texts, and they never do so? How many times have your kids say, oh yeah, I'll do that, but they don't? Listen, we're surrounded by people who don't keep their word, and if we're honest, sometimes we're that person. Just recently, a brother here at the church asked me to do something for him, and it was a good thing. He wasn't asking me to endure torture or fight a hippopotamus. He was asking me to help with something discipleship-related, something great, actually. And I said, oh yeah, I'll take care of it. Don't worry, I've got it. And then I proceeded to completely forget and drop the ball. 
And so just this week, I had to apologize to him and say, you know what, I, I'm so sorry. I did not do what I said I would. Please forgive me. I wish I could say that was the first time I've done that, but it's not. And I wish I could say it would be the last time I'll do that, but it won't be. Because listen, we are not always faithful. We don't always keep our word. In fact, we're going to be reminded of this in the book of Ezra. Just a spoiler alert, but the book of Ezra kind of ends on a thud. It ends with a long list of sinners. And in that we're reminded we as people are not faithful. We don't keep our word. We don't do what we say we'll do. But hear this, God does. Every last promise of his comes true. Even if it takes the decree of a pagan king like Cyrus, he will fulfill his word. And again, we know his promises, and this is something that Jim talked about earlier, find their yes and their amen ultimately in Jesus Christ. In the book of Ezra, the people of God will find temporary restoration of both their worship and relationship with God, but it will only be temporary. God's promises would have to be ultimately fulfilled through another. It would not come through Ezra, for that matter, Nehemiah or Haggai or Jeremiah or Zechariah or Zerubbabel. No, God's promises would have to come to a, a final fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who would ultimately demonstrate the totality of God's commitment to keep his word. He does what he says he'll do. He keeps his promises. So that's what we're reminded of in this passage. In summary, God sovereignly directs the hearts of his people according to his purposes. God provides for his people, and God keeps his promises. And in light of that, I think the only fitting response in terms of how we should respond to this passage is simply a call this morning to trust him. Trust that God knows what he's doing. Trust that he'll take care of your needs. Trust that there's nothing happening outside of his control. Trust that he will keep his word. Trust that through Christ we can be rescued. Listen, I, I know some of you right now are going through really challenging circumstances. Maybe your health is letting you down. Or maybe your kids are heading the wrong direction. Or maybe finances are squeezing in on you. Or maybe you're in relational conflict with someone else. Or maybe there's a kid that's bullying you at school. Or maybe you have a spouse that's difficult. Or maybe you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Maybe you're weary of this world and all of its problems. Listen, if I'm honest, that's where I am right now. In the last couple of weeks, I've just felt tired. There's been a lot of stuff happening in our family. A lot of stuff happening here at the church, my own personal life, and lately I've just been feeling tired. So if you're in that boat with me, first of all, welcome to the boat. Second of all, let me encourage you this morning. And let me encourage myself this morning. He can be trusted. Listen, your life circumstances, my life circumstances are not out of his control. He's not forgotten about us. He's still on the throne and he still cares. He's sovereignly directing the hearts of people according to his purposes. He's providing for his people. He's keeping his promises. He's good, and he can be trusted. And again, we know this primarily because he sent his son to die for our sins. So church, in light of what we read here in Ezra 1, in light of what we read in the rest of the Bible, let me encourage you and let me encourage myself, let's put all of our eggs into his basket. Let's trust him, and let's entrust ourselves to him. After all, where else do we have to go? He's the only king, the only one that we can trust at all times and in all circumstances. So let's trust him because he can be trusted. Let's pray. God, I do, I do feel the weight of living in this broken world, and I'm sure there are many others right now who are feeling that same weight, and it feels crushing at times if we're honest. But God, I pray that we would remember this morning that you can be trusted. 
that you are sovereignly directing the hearts of people according to your purposes. That you provide for your people. That you keep your promises. Lord, we pray that we would remember these facts. That we would remember these things and keep putting them in front of ourselves. That we would keep reminding ourselves that you can be trusted, that your character is good. Lord, help us to fight the fight of faith. Help us to believe this to be true. Help us to remember and to know that you are good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.